Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is Robert Gallardo, a California native who moved to Honduras in 1993 for the Peace Corps and then stayed for the tropical birds. He is now considered the country's leading authority on both birds and butterflies. He leads tours for naturalist journeys and fauna ventures to Panama, Honduras, Costa Rica, Trinidad and Tobago, and even North America. Robert is the current president of the Pro Nature Honduras Foundation, a small nonprofit which promotes nature-based sustainable tourism and environmental education. He is also the co-founder of the Honduran Ornithological Society. He's authored two editions of the Guide to the Birds of Honduras, along with his most recent book, Guide to the Butterflies of Honduras. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Chris. So you regularly lead tours to wonderful birding locations all around the world. Can you tell us about one of your recent trips? I just finished the Monsoon Madness trip Mm -hmm. with Naturalist Journeys, and it features several of the sky islands here in southeast Arizona. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Chiriquah Mountains, the Huachuca Mountains. We visit uh, different Hummingbird sanctuaries or mm-hmm. bird sanctuaries. People get to see hummingbirds close up for extended periods. Mm-hmm. Get to go up mountains and down mountains, <laughs> see dry valleys, see roadrunners, the spectacular array of hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an eight-day trip. Okay. What are some of the birds that people go on this trip specifically looking for? Well, the big target is the elegant trogon. Yeah. So that's, that's the northernmost breeding trogon. Okay. Were you able to see or hear any during this trip? We did. We had a male and two young birds. Oh, wow. Yep. Well, let's talk about your own birding background. When did you first take an interest in birds? Well, my fondest memory was in eighth grade, uh, and this is in Southern California, Santa Paula. I was entering into the biology classroom. Mr. Bryson was a teacher, and junior, I was located in the foothills, and so there's lots of trees there. And there was a big pine tree outside uh, one of the windows. The whole wall was plate glass windows. And we were just sitting down. He was going to take roll call. And I looked out and I see this bird sitting on the uh, low branch and it happened to be a male western tanager. Oh. And I looked over there and I said in a quite loud voice, look, there's a western tanager. <laughs> Everybody looked out the window Mr. Bryson looked out the window, looked at the bird. Nobody said anything. They looked over at me, and nobody said anything. (laughs) (laughs) So I imagine I had, well, I had numerous books back then, um, like the early Golden Guides, and then when Audubon started releasing those photo guides, uh, birds and butterflies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of the nerd in the school, but I had lots of friends. Nobody bothered me about it. And so that was my earliest and most fondest memory of of seeing a bird. Mm. And then from there, how did it kind of develop your interest in birds? Well, from there, uh, I finished high school. I went to a junior college in Northern California in Shasta County. And then I went to Humboldt State University uh, for three years and graduated with a degree in natural resources, history mm-hmm. and interpretation and RPI. 
I was just a very casual bird watcher mm. on and off. I actually had a little uh, inexpensive spotting scope before I even had a pair of binoculars and just very, very casual birding. It was, mm. it was nothing serious. Mm. When do you think it took a turn where it became more serious? The turning point was uh, well into my residing in Honduras. I've been there since 1993. It was the year 2000. A good friend of mine uh, called me and he said, Robert, we need a bird watching guide. Uh, there's a, a board of directors coming down from Washington, which was the rare center for tropical conservation. Mm. And at that time on the board was uh, Robert Ridgely, okay. <laughs> one of the preeminent ornithologists for for the neotropics. And I said, I had Fito. I don't know much about birds. Yeah. I go, he goes, well, we need somebody. somebody. They want to come. They want to see birds. And I go, okay. So that was my real first birding gig or yeah. job, if, if you want to call it. And, uh, and obviously I was with Robert Ridgely and yeah. obviously he knew a billion more <laughs> than I did about Honduran birds even. And that's when I realized that, Hey, People pay to watch birds. It's like, well, they don't teach you this stuff in school. So that's when I really went headfirst into bird watching because I stayed in Honduras for the butterflies and tried to rear butterflies for export. That was one of my Peace Corps projects oh. in 95, 96. Yeah. And it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And so this, this thing with bird watching and learning birds, it came at the right time. <laughs> From that point on, as you got more into bird watching, I'm sure you had many wonderful encounters with birds. Do any in particular pop out in your mind right now that you think, I just remember this experience vividly. Can you tell us about one of those? There are, I mean, probably just so many, many moments. Um, one very particular striking one that really stood out was in eastern Honduras, which is known as the Little Amazon of Central America. Mm. You hike into the headwaters for a day. You pump air into your four-man floatable rafts, and you float down Virgin Rainforest River for seven days. Mm. But in the headwaters on one particular trip, we were looking down a ravine, and we could hear three wattle bellbirds calling in the distance. Mm. Uh, they migrate through there going from Nicaragua to a mountain further west where they breed. Mm. And there was also a big fruiting tree way over on our left. And we're looking at a valley that was probably no less than half to three quarters of a mile across. And it's all virgin rainforest. Mm. Can I and pause you real quick? When you talk about virgin rainforest, what does that mean? That means it's never been cut. It's okay. old growth rainforest, which is getting harder and harder to find, in, yeah. especially in Central America. Lowland rainforest, I'm not talking cloud forest, so okay. it's only maybe seven, eight hundred feet in elevation. So okay. it's pretty low. Yeah. And so we're watching this tree and we could see movement on the left side of the valley, not too far from us. And we could see two birds. One was a snowy katinga and one was a lovely katinga. Mm. <clears throat> so with a bellbird there, we had three species of katingas all, all in one spot. Mm. And so I'm watching this snowy katinga, and these are pure white, and so okay. they're really easy to see. Yeah. And all of a sudden, one flies out of the tree, and he makes a beeline heading straight across this huge valley. Yeah. And he's going, and it's like, what is this snowy katinga doing? And he's, he's going to the other side of the valley, mm -hmm. straight toward the mountain. 
And I had I had binoculars, of course, and I'm just watching. I'm just following him. He went and ran, literally ran into another snowy Katinga. <laughs> so these Katingas don't make sounds. I mean, almost oh. nothing that we can hear with our with our ears. So the like the, all these color katingas and all the white katingas are virtually silent. So mm. they're more sight oriented. Mm. So this one he saw another snowy katinga on the other side of the valley flew over there and met I assume it was another male or female, we don't know, yeah. and chased it up and over this mountain. Wow. And watched it the whole time. So it was it was spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> For some of our listeners who may not be familiar with that bird, can you describe its appearance a little bit? The snowy katinga? Please. It is a pure white bird, maybe just a little shade of gray around the back, maybe the top of the head and and black eyes Mm. and a black bill. But if you can imagine a white-colored rock pigeon or feral pigeon Mm -hmm. on a miniature size, that's kind of what they look like. But obviously no feral pigeons in the virgin rainforest. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a much smaller bird then. Yeah. So usually when we see those small birds, we expect them to be songbirds. But this bird, like you said, doesn't make sounds that we can hear. Exactly. Hmm. Now let's move on to our bird segment where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Robert will tell us about the oscillated quail. When you shared a picture of this quail, I noticed that it looked very similar to the Montezuma quail. You also mentioned that for many years it was considered a ghost bird. Can you tell us what that means and why it was considered one? So a, a ghost bird or, or a phantom bird is is one of these species around the world that has typically has a very, very small range or it could be very, very hard to find or hard to get to mm-hmm. or something that's in very, very low numbers. And, and in terms of this this type of bird and in this specific case, it was a bird at that moment that not a single bird watching company or a guide could say, I'm going to take you out and see an oscillated quail. Hmm. So what was kind of the turning point where it was no longer considered a ghost bird? What made it not a ghost bird? Because it's not considered one today, right? Right. It probably started when uh, we got a small grant to actually study the bird. Uh, At that time, uh, this book was already out, first edition. More bird watchers and bird watching uh, groups and companies were going, starting to go to Honduras, and people started asking about this bird, this oscillated quail. And so, going back a bit further, I was using several books to study the birds Honduras before we've had our, our own book, and we had sure. a monograph, hmm. which is a compilation of all the bird skins that were taken out of the country over about a 150-year period. is about 20,000 birds that were collected hmm. by different collectors. Hmm. Uh, so groups of birds or skins went to Europe. A big group went to the U.S. And so Burt Monroe Jr. did a compilation of all those skins. He went to all the museums and did this monograph and hmm. for every single bird that was collected in Honduras. So I went into the book, and there they were, a whole bunch of oscillated quails that were taken from the country. And so I started going to all these, not all, but some of these sites and, and they were all pine oak forest Mm. and nobody knew anything about this bird. I knew nothing about this bird. Nobody did. And so we started walking around in the forest and then we started stumbling upon this bird. And 
site by site, we found that in most places they were there, and in many instances that they were common in these in these vast pine oak forests in in the highlands in Honduras.、Hmm. Do you remember the first time you saw one? I do. It was in a private reserve managed by a private university.、Mm-hmm. Um, that was my first experience.、Uh, this bird really likes, especially the male, to perch on fallen logs or stumps.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember looking up a little knoll, and I see this thing on top of a stump, and I go, "Oh, that's an oscillator quail." <laughs> <laughs> I started going to it closer to it, and I had just a little cheap little digital camera. I didn't get a picture, that, but that was probably one of my first experiences of at least seeing it at at a distance. Sure, I imagine that must have been quite a treat after all the research you had done before that. Just wondering where is this bird and trying to find it. Right. Yeah. The, the month long trip or survey、uh, that was a whole different story. We literally uncovered or saw hundreds of these things in a very very small area. Wow.、Uh, we took the we got the first photographs of. Living females in the wild and chicks as well.、Hmm. So, speaking of that, you mentioned the pine oak forests, which was areas that you started looking in to find them. Are those the areas these birds are usually found in? Yes, the, this is considered a Mesoamerican endemic, Mesoamerican, which is Central American. <clears throat> so, it's only known from southern Mexico, and its range comes really close to the Montezuma quail,、hmm. which is found from southern Mexico. Up here in the southwestern United States, yeah. But it only ranges from southern Mexico in their highland pine oak to extreme northern Nicaragua, where the pine oak forest terminates.、Hmm. So when you talk about a pine oak, what kind of area is this? If I'm walking through, what am I going to notice in that habitat? So if you walk into like Madera Canyon and other places here in Arizona, you see、yeah. you're in pine oak forest. Okay. I mean, there's a mixture of other things in the sure, sycamores.、Sure. We don't have sycamores in Honduras, but it it kind of looks like that.、Okay. Maybe some scattered boulders and some other understory shrubs. You'll see some bromeliads in in the pine oaks down there,、hmm. but it looks very very similar, kind of grassy,、uh, and they pref- they really prefer a really Uh, open understory,、hmm. and even areas that have been burned—not、um, every year, but every couple of years or so—are beneficial to this quail.、Hmm. And I'm guessing that probably has something to do with what they eat. Exactly. What what do they eat? So during this survey that took almost a month to do, we found that these things dug little round holes、uh, that were anywhere just a couple, of few inches in diameter to. Two or three inches deep,、hmm. and so we were found they were going after roots, corms, and bulbs of a whole variety of different plants, from little little native lilies,、um, oxalis, which is like a clo- it's a clover. Okay, that was one of their favorite food <laughs> plants. They would eat Indian pipe, which、mm. is a saprophyte, and ours is red. I think、mm. your Indian pipe up here is white,、mm. and so we were. Uncovering all this, and because nobody knew anything about this bird,、yeah. and we could look at a hole and almost see it steaming. <laughs> so we we knew that the birds were close. <laughs> this is one of those cryptic species, like I think some of the button quail of Africa,、mm. where you almost have to step on them to flush them, because、oh. if they see you from a hundred feet away, they just sit there and freeze and、mm. and just crouch down in the ground. And don't even blink an eye, literally. And、mm. so you almost have to step on them to flush them. So that is their defense mechanism, just staying still. Yep, just freeze.、Hmm. 
I think that that seems in contrast with some of the quail I see most frequently here, like the gambles quail. You cannot get close to one of those. They're, right. they're running already. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, this bird, it vocalizes every once in a while. I get to hear one, not mm. not very often. And, and, and how would you describe that call? Uh, one is a long, drawn, descending whistle, which we believe is the male. And one other vocalization that I recorded years ago was like a cackling sound. It's very, very similar to what a resplendent quetzal makes. Oh, wow. And we were in Pine Oak Forest. I knew it wasn't a resplendent <laughs> quetzal. And we went to where the sound was coming from. And what we found was a female oscillated quail. So we don't know if that was some kind of contact call or, or hmm. if it was calling chicks. We, we don't know. Yeah. When we talk about identification, I, I guess you have to make quite an effort to find these birds. But based on their appearance, how might you compare them to something that we're familiar with here, like the Montezuma quail? Well, I saw Montezuma quail last year on my very first trip to Arizona. So okay. that was really cool. Yeah. And I was with a co-leader, and he was in the car in front of me. And he saw these things cross the road, and I didn't because I was in the car behind so he got out, hey, they're oscillated quail, they're Montezuma quail. And I said, we'll get these guys. They're sitting there in the grass. So we went up, we flushed the birds out. The female flew far away. The male flew, but I saw where he landed. Hmm. And we were able to get the bird on the scope. Yeah. We got it to walk up so all the clients, right in front of them, so all the clients could see it. Sure. So this bird has a dark. Uh, belly or dark abdomen, mm -hmm. um, almost purplish. So okay. the colors are even more contrasting than our oscillated quail because the see. underside of ours is more of a, a rich chestnut colored. Okay. And the then, head pattern's almost almost identical. Yeah, yeah, that's the first thing I noticed when I saw your picture. Uh, as far as size, they're very similar size? Yes. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier when you discovered that large quantity of them once you had identified their habitat. But normally when you see one of these quail, what size groups are we likely to see them in? So typically they're in very small coveys, four, five, and occasionally six or seven birds. Not mm. Usually not, not much more than that. Mm. And a lot of times will you see them on the ground or up in trees? For the most part, they're they're on the ground. Uh, we don't know anything about their specific roosting behavior. If they go up in the bushes or trees for the night, imagine they they might. Um, but they are on the ground, and the males typically are on fallen logs or stumps. Mm -hmm. And then being on the ground, I'm sure they have to worry about some predators. What might they have to be careful about? So in our area, it could be collared forest falcon, which does go into that habitat, gray fox as well. Hmm. Um, in one instance, we came into a canyon in, the, in our study area where there were no oscillated quails and no fresh diggings, which was odd. And then down the ravine a ways, we found a mother great horned owl and two big chicks. So <laughs> we figured that this owl was taking anything that moved in there. Sure. So that might be why there were no oscillated quail there. Probably. <laughs> so we talked earlier about how they had that status of being a ghost bird, but then over time, over some of this research, now that we've learned more about them, they're not considered a ghost bird anymore. So if someone wants to see one today, how might they go about it? Well, we have numerous sites in, in Honduras, uh, a couple that are pretty easy to get to. And mm -hmm. sometimes we could see this bird in less than an hour. Oh, wow. So I've, I've, Taken many people out with different companies and, and private groups. Some of the bird watching guides that I trained during formal courses 
they know where to find these birds as well. Hmm. If you were to pick one location, what name would you choose for a place where I've just come to Honduras, I'd like to go to one place to see this quail? Where might I go? There's a place in western Honduras, in Salake National Park. It's our, our tallest mountain. Mm-hmm. And at the foot of it, there's a lot of pine oak forest. Mm-hmm. And then there's another place in central Honduras. Um, it's another uh, reserve, wildlife reserve, that has a spectacular bird diversity mm-hmm. with katingas and motmots and oscillated quail lower down in the forest. Mm-hmm. But both are really good places to see this bird. Okay. For the last portion of this episode, let's talk about one of your books, Guide to the Birds of Honduras. What can people expect when they read this book? Well, this book is obviously not a field guide, 550 pages, so it's a bit on the heavy side. Yeah. And uh, being self-published, I was able to put the information that I wanted to get across to the readers. Mm-hmm. So often, oftentimes with with modern day published books, their authors are often restricted on the size of these books. Mm. Um, the more you write, the bigger the book gets, the heavier it gets, the more it costs to print. Sure. <laughs> so I was I was able to do what I wanted with this book. And if you can't take in the field, you can't, but some people cut the plates out <laughs> and bind them. So when you think of things that you added that you might have been restricted by had you gone through a different publisher, what are some of those things that you were able to expand on or get into because of that larger page count? So there's more natural history information on, mm-hmm. on many, many of the species. That was the, probably the bulk of the, of the actual content of mm-hmm. the written information. Okay. When someone picks up this book, if they're visiting Honduras, they might be tempted to just pull out their phone and check on eBird to go birding. Why might they turn to this book? Well, this is, it's the only comprehensive book to the country. Mm -hmm. And in the back, there's actually a large uh, fold-out map, Mm -hmm. a GPS-coded map. And so this kind of stuff you don't see in modern-day field guides or bird guides. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's all cross-referenced to all the information in the book and the species accounts. So if somebody said, hey, I want to go look for an oscillated quail or a Honduran emerald, which is our endemic hummingbird, they could go into the text look at the map and there's there's a table in there an index and everything and which is easily cross-referenced hmm. <clears throat> so then by looking in this book you could have a very good idea of the geographical location and then also the habitat and then you might even know a little bit of the history behind that area or that bird exactly yeah. okay when you I'm sure self-publishing a book of this size is quite a feat and uh, time consuming took probably many years. Over that time, as you were building this book, is there anything when you turn back to the finished product where you look at it and say, you know what, I was really proud of this, that you were able to include this or something that you put in that book? What, would, what comes to mind when you think of that? I think it would have to be the, the big map that we did in there. It was about halfway through, uh, probably working on the second draft of the book. Uh, we had done most of the individual range maps in there. It felt like something was missing, and and there's a country map, a small country map in there too as well. And I said, I'd really like to show people where these birds are exactly in the country. And these little range, individual range maps just showed, it's just broad, mm-hmm. I mean, they're tiny maps. I said, why don't we do a big map? <laughs> so my graphic design buddy, uh, Luis, which is, he's on Duran, he goes, yeah, he goes, let's do it. <laughs> 
we can do it. And so I started working on a full-scale map of the country. One side has the general ecosystems, but the other side, which is the really nice part, is a GPS-coded marker map. Hmm. And that gave a place or a face to each I forgot how many. It's over 200 bird watching sites at that moment yeah. that uh, we had investigated in the country, and it took it took more than a year to do this map and to get it into dig- digital format. Hmm. But I've seen many guides uh, in the country, and I've never seen a product like this. And hmm. I've had other people see the map, and they said, "Wow, that's incredible." We should do these kind of things for, for for these books to show people where they can be found. Can you help us understand, for those who may not be familiar, when you say GPS coded, what is the significance of that? So in the actually there's an index in the back or a table so people can go to that specific uh, marker mm-hmm. and it has a GPS code on it. They're UTM markers. And so somebody could, if they wanted to put it into a, a GPS, they could go to that site, that very specific spot. So the benefit is it's a very specific location. Right. Instead of just an area or a preserve or, okay. Mm-hmm. So if someone would like to pick this book up, how would they go about doing that? So in, in North America, uh, it's available through Budio Books, okay. which is the ABA bookstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're anywhere else in Europe, it's available through... NHBS, it's, it's a company out of England. Okay. And then we'll try to include some links to that in the podcast description so people can find those. Uh, before we go, is there anything else you would like to share with us? Maybe what you're up to for the rest of the year? Tours, doing a couple more tours for Naturalist Journey. I'll be up in uh, back in Panama in October mm-hmm. where we catch the southward migration of the raptors from North America, hmm. especially Swainsons and Broadwings. And then November, back up to Texas for another tour and attending their butterfly festival. Okay. I, I think it's their 25th year. Hmm. When you say Texas in November, are you by chance going to the Rio Grande Valley? Uh, we're working on that. We're not sure yet. Okay. It's in the works, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Robert for joining us today, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And while you're there, please leave a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of the oscillated quail taken by Robert, please visit at Looking at Birds Podcast on Instagram. And until next time, keep looking at birds.